Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the National Audubon Society celebrating the importance of birds who provide inspiration, disperse seeds, and feed on harmful insects. More information about 2018 Year of the Bird at birdyourworld.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Utah Women's Giving Circle is hosting a panel discussion titled The Slippery Slope of Sexual Harassment. That is uh, coming up next week. The event is part of their 2018 awareness and grant-making initiative to empower men and women to take a stand against sexual harassment in their lives, workplaces, and communities. And uh, the panel will focus on the history and current state of media representations of sexual violence and harassment, the connection between sexual harassment and violence, and the role of public policy. And uh, two of the panelists uh, join me for the program today. We welcome from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City, Sarah Perjanski, who is Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Academic Affairs in the College of Fine Arts and Professor in the Gender Studies Department at the University of uh, Utah. Sarah Perjanski, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you in. Uh, your books include Spectacular Girls, Media Fascination and Celebrity Culture, and Watching Rape, Film and Television in Post-Feminist Culture, and Sarah Pajanski's most recent essay, Pro- From Pro-Equality to Anti-Sexual Violence, The Feminist Logics of Title IX in Policy and Media. It's published in an anthology. In studio here with us, we welcome in Aaron Jemison, who is Director of Public Policy at YWCA of Utah. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, Aaron Jemison, uh, within a role at YWCA Utah, advocates on behalf of Utah women and girls in the areas of economic stability, racial justice, and civil rights, and health and safety. Uh, she relocated to Utah after leading the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault as their executive director. She also served there as chairperson of the Colorado Sex Offender Management Board. And her educational focus was on uh, gender equity. Uh, she has a bachelor's degree in sociology from William Smith College and master's in public administration from Montana State uh, University. The other panelist, by the way, uh, who was to join us, uh, she's a lawyer and she's in court right now, <laughs> so that can't fight the court, uh, is Nubia Pena, advocacy prevention training specialist to the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Uh, so welcome to our panelists uh, here. And... Um, uh, let me start uh, with uh, with you, Aaron Jemison. Mm-hmm. I know you uh, you have to go here in about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> a meeting on campus here at Utah State University. Um, the connection. One of the themes going to be uh, treated in the panel discussion: connection between sexual harassment and violence. Uh, maybe right. maybe start there. What are your thoughts there? They're, obviously, if you think about it, there is a connection, but uh, maybe you could spell that out a little bit. Sure. So in the in the field of sexual assault victim advocacy, we talk a lot about that uh, that that kind of spectrum of violence that offenders will often start at that lower level of violence. They'll start with um, verbal threats or emotional coercion that really can fall into sexual harassment depending on the on the context and then um, they will generally escalate their tactics and escalate violence um, until um, they get what they want so mm-hmm. often uh, victims and survivors will learn to uh, resist or or prevent more successfully some of those that lower end behavior and and start to set boundaries and so um, some of what we see about offender behavior is just that escalating, um, escalating violence, escalating uh, 
violation of boundaries until they they can kind of keep getting what they want. And so that's often why we talk about that that kind of spectrum from from verbal harassment um, all the way up in, until sexual assault or rape in, in some cases. Mm. Sarah Pajanski, your your thoughts on this? And I, I don't know if this connects into with the panel, uh, the the title of the panel discussion, slippery slope of sexual harassment. Well, yes, I think it does. And um, to add what, to what Aaron was saying, another way to think about the link between sexual harassment and sexual violence is through the history of Title IX, which, of course, is very relevant to our, our college campuses. So earlier, in sort of the beginning of the 21st century, Title IX was used to address sexual harassment on campus. And while um, activists and um, victim survivors use the courts to define sexual violence as a type of sexual harassment. It wasn't until 2011 um, that the Office for Civil Rights explicitly acknowledged that sexual violence was a form of sexual harassment. So for about, you know, seven or eight years now, the way Title IX has functioned on college campuses has really shifted um, so that uh, Title IX is used not only to address sexual harassment, but also sexual violence. So in that context, sexual violence is defined uh, under the umbrella of sexual harassment, which is a larger category. Mm. I want to get into maybe a little later in the program uh, the, the, the Title IX issues. Uh, Utah mm-hmm. State University is uh, is under Title IX investigation. Uh, several mm-hmm. other universities mm-hmm. in Utah. We've been much in the news. Um, mm-hmm. well, let me change gears. Let, let's let's address that right now. Um, so, uh, Aaron Jemison, what your your thoughts on this? This is there, there's there's shifting. Mm-hmm. Attitudes, mm-hmm. Uh, shifting culture, hopefully, right? Shifting culture, um, but but still some problems here. Yeah, I mean, I think we see uh, obviously much more public discussion. I mean, I've been working with victims of sexual assault for over twenty years now, and and some of the the conversations that are now being had in this in this public square, so to speak, would have never been uttered even that long ago, maybe even 10 years ago. So uh, the the visibility of the conversation, the willingness of survivors to come forward and say this happened to me and this it was not my fault and I'm not going to stay silent anymore has really um, progressed quickly. I think um, one of my fears from that victim advocacy side is that um, that there will be a backlash, that the pendulum will swing the other way, and that, for instance, as as the Me Too movement continues to move forward, um, I'm very much someone who is in favor of due process and having really clear um, processes both for reporting and for the person who is being accused to be able to respond to that accusation. And um, I think sometimes we get a little overeager on the victim advocacy side of things, and I think in the long run that's not going to help anybody if we aren't really creating clear processes and procedures. That's boring, doesn't make the headlines, it's not not an exciting topic, but um, whether it's college campuses or workplaces or um, in our state statute, we need to be really clear about what victims' rights are, but we also need to be really clear about how investigations should proceed, and they, they need to be victim-focused, um, they need to be supportive of victims, but we also need to try to get to the truth. Um, otherwise, I think the pendulum will swing back and, and we'll be silencing victims again. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me turn to Sarah Pajanski. That's interesting. The the case uh, cases up here at uh, Utah State University, at least the one of the more recent cases in the music department. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the women who came forward uh, said that, uh, at the time when this happened, we feel we weren't adequately heard. And then the, the mm-hmm. culture shifts, and the, now perhaps we're able to be heard. The university has uh, you know has responded. I wonder where you think we are, Sarah Pajanski, on mm-hmm. with regard to Title IX here. 
Um, well, <laughs> I mean, I think that that story that we haven't previously been able to be heard and now we're being heard is um, both accurate and not accurate. It's definitely true that right now we're in a moment of intense media attention because of Me Too and Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and, you know, high profile cases. Um, but that that story of women finally being able to be heard is repeated over and over. For instance, at a big uh, blip in 2013 of uh, intense media attention to this issue, um, the use of Title IX to fight sexual violence on campus. So um, it's, I think, cyclical. Um, and I do think it's very important that the media are able to representations in the media, stories in the media, whether it's news or social media or even fictional narrative, bring attention to it and um, perhaps open a space where some women feel a little bit more comfortable coming forward. And then in that context, media sometimes will then pick up the story. Um, and so I do think that that, that is an important way to understand it. But it's also important to remember that, you know, a year from now, <clears throat> the the case, at, um, uh, the current case we're talking about in the music department will fade from memory and we may have the same kind of story uh, where all of a sudden it's a new thing that, that uh, a case is, is public again. Hmm. Uh, so Aaron Jemison, what, do you agree with that? This is uh, because the way this is being I, uh, I, I, I can't quite think how to, how to put this, so I'll just put it um, imperfectly. The way this is being advertised, or the way the conventional wisdom is, right, to me too, this is, this is a sea change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps it's just cyclical? Yeah, yeah I think, I, think I, I do agree that it's cyclical. I kind of picture it as a, t- a tornado that is cyclical, but it's also kind of moving up <laughs> moving up the trajectory very slowly. I mean, I don't think we're we're I personally don't believe that we are going back to um back, you know, multiple decades where people just didn't even talk about this anymore. I don't think we'll, we'll go back that far. I don't think the cycle will go back that far, but I do think I completely agree that um you can go back and look when I was first running the Colorado Coalition Against Sexual Assault, we were talking about Kobe Bryant. No one ever talks about mm-hmm. that anymore. He's still in the spotlight at some level, but nobody talks about the fact that he was involved in a sexual assault case. And so I do think it's cyclical, but I, I think and I hope and I do believe that it is also moving forward in terms of um, there will be a point which we will not get go back to, that that will kind of slowly keep moving in the direction of, of victims being heard. And I did want to mention that I think Title IX is really complicated for victims. I've done most of my victim advocacy work on campus at Montana State University, and I was there when the, the letter came out to say that we're now going to be treating um, sexual violence under this broader umbrella. And universities struggle with how to how to handle that and and we struggled as victim advocates because sometimes what Title IX um, results in is victims being forced to come forward and victims' privacy being um, being violated. And it's an incredibly complicated issue. We want victims to come forward if they're comfortable. We want perpetrators to be identified. We want campuses to be safe. And at the same time, some of the ways that Title IX gets implemented um, means that victims are less supported and less safe and, and are less empowered to make choices about their own lives and situations. And so um, we need a, all of those stakeholders 
players at the table and, and figuring out what the best process is on each campus. And it's it's not nearly as cut and dry as it might seem with, with a letter or a statute or, or saying, well, now we say this is wrong and everybody cheers. It's, it's like it's not quite that simple mm. when it comes to victims' lives. And, and, and this is an incredibly intense trauma for people and the way that that gets dealt with for them is um, – is very individualized and it, it makes policy really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah Pajanski, mm-hmm. I want to talk first about the, uh, the this idea of uh, this being cyclical, as you've you mm-hmm. brought up. Um, and uh, Aaron Jemison said, "Well, cyclical, yes, but perhaps uh, you know, upward, mm-hmm. making some progress." Do you agree with that, or or not? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, let me give an example. Um, another era that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, now, as we're dealing with Me Too, is the early 90s, which was another moment of intense attention to sexual violence in the media. Um, Just for the older listeners out there, you might remember Mike Tyson was convicted of rape in 1992 and served three of his six-year sentence in prison. Uh, Of course, Clarence Thomas um, and then Nita Hill, those hearings, and Tail Hook also. All of this was 91-92. In addition, this was an era when the very concept date rape came into being. So prior to 91 or the early 90s, late 80s, that concept didn't exist. Of course, the act existed, the experience existed, but the the concept didn't exist. And there was a very influential Time magazine cover story in 1991 that kind of brought that phrase into everyday parlance. So on the one hand, that's an example of, of a cyclical Um, way of understanding media attention to sexual violence and sexual harassment happened in the early 90s. It's happening now. It will likely dissipate and then a new case will come and it'll reemerge. So cyclical in that sense, but also exactly what Aaron is saying, the very idea that, you know, in the early 90s was the very beginning of the concept of date rape, which we now have as a concept that no one would question that there is such a thing. And that's definite progress because obviously it allows um, victims and survivors to articulate what happened to them in a way that they couldn't have prior to the early 90s. Um, So it's a both and. It's both cyclical and a moving forward. Um, I also wanted to add that I I definitely hear what Aaron's saying about the the difficulty of using Title IX and, and that's you know, that's also in my experience. I've done some research with Title IX coordinators on a few different campuses. Absolutely the case that it's very difficult. Um, policy is one thing, and then the way it's put into practice is another. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I also think that the changes in policy around Title IX, which, um, you know, kind of move forward in the beginning of this decade and now are being rolled back under Betsy DeVos, um, are influential and also in the way media talk about Title IX is very influential on how we understand uh, sexual harassment and sexual violence in the, in the public imaginary. Oh, we just have about a minute left with Aaron Jemison, and you have to get to a meeting across campus here. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, your final word on the topic before we let you go. I don't know what my final thought is, but I will say I'm glad Sarah brought up the the early 90s because that was the last time that the media used the the phrase, maybe not the last time, Sarah would know better than I, but one of the last times that the media really caught on to that phrase, year of the woman, happened in the early 90s. It was a time when our women in our Utah legislature really banded together to try to get more women elected. And we're seeing, I mean, all over the media right now, you see about women uh, breaking barriers and, and making um, 
new records in women and women of color in, in positions across the country in elected positions now that we're in the, the election cycle again. And so um, I just think that's fascinating that that we're using that expression again as, as if we've never talked about this before, as as if um, as if this hasn't happened before. And yet it was the exact same trajectory where harassment and violence led to uh, women trying to get more positions at the decision making table. And so I think it'll be interesting to see if this this time it's more sustainable or like Sarah said, if we just keep kind of cycling up and down mm-hmm. and, and part of my responsibility in my position is our real women run program. We're trying to get more women in office and, and across the political spectrum, our, our interest is gender equity. We're not concerned about which party they're in. And, um, and we're seeing some movement on that and we're trying to kind of capitalize on the momentum, but it will be interesting to see how long it lasts and how quickly it's forgotten. So, mm-hmm. Um, it's fascinating times to be in when we're talking about, about gender and, and violence in particular. Yeah. We'll continue this discussion uh, following a break, and we uh, thank Aaron Jemison, uh, who is uh, Director of Public Policy at YWCA of Utah. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. We'll continue with uh, Sarah Pajanski, who's Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Academic Affairs at College of Fine Arts and Professor in the Gender Studies Department at the University of Utah. Uh, Aaron Jemison and Sarah Pajanski, along with Nubia Pena, our panelists, and they're going to be appearing in a panel presented by the Utah Women's Giving Circle. That panel is happening 6.30 p.m. Wednesday, May 30th in the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Auditorium, University of Utah. More of this discussion following this break. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Free Economics Radio, a man who okay, well, thank for you. Sorry that I'm Often they're very cheap systems, like a checklist. <laughs> that can get really great results. And for him, it can be easy. One of the things that I love about surgery is it is <laughs> the least stressful thing I do. Surgeon, author, public health crusader Atul Gawande, next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Andre Leon Talley is one of the biggest names in fashion. Former editor-at-large for Vogue magazine, a mainstay of any Oscars or Emmys fashion panel. But Andre says clothing for him is armor against a world that is often cruel and unforgiving. That is coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Look around, find something that's the color red, and then listen to this. A lot of the reds that we currently have in use can have contained cadmium or other elements that are uh, dangerous to us. I'm Kai Rizdal. Invent a better red, and maybe it's worth a billion dollars, which is a lot of green. That's next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and the Utah Women's Giving Circle is hosting a panel discussion titled The Slippery Slope of Sexual Harassment. That's happening Wednesday, May 30th, 6.30 p.m. in the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Auditorium at the University of Utah. This is a part of their 2018 Awareness and Grant-Making Initiative to empower men and women to take a stand against sexual harassment in their lives, workplaces, and communities. And uh, the panel will discuss the history and current state of media representations of sexual violence and harassment, the connection between sexual harassment and violence, and the role of public policy. And panelists will include Nubia Pena, Advocacy Prevention Training Specialist at Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, 
Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy at YWCA of Utah, who we had on the first part of the program here. And uh, we continue with Sarah Pajanski, who's Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Academic Affairs at College of Fine Arts and Professor in the Gender Studies Department at University of Utah. Um, so uh, before the break, Sarah Pajanski, uh, Aaron Jemison was... Uh, expressing uh, hope that this is not just another moment, that perhaps this is sustainable, and that in the context of the, uh, you're bringing up a point, this is kind of cyclical. What what do you think? This Me Too movement, um, sustainable? Or do, what, what do you think the future is going to bring? Um, so I might sound like I'm contradicting myself now, but I actually see it as kind of a continuous process. The cyclical part of it is how much media attention we get, um, but it f- goes from some to you know an astronomical amount back down to some, so it never goes away at all. So, for instance, the Me Too movement is really sort of a could be understood as a continuation of uh, what was happening on college campuses when I was in college, which is um, speakouts on rape, right? This is pre-social media uh, where people would gather in person to share their testimony and their experience. So Me Too is not a new idea at all, um, and, it, and it has existed at least since the late 60s, early 70s as a form of activism. Um, so in that sense, I absolutely agree with Aaron's optimism that this this is an activism that's continuing and that we are making progress in terms of how we're defining um, what sexual harassment and sexual violence are and how we address them and how much space we give um, to victim survivors to speak about their experiences and challenge um, the perpetrators. Um, I, so it's a continuation, but also I think the me- the intense media attention will die down um, and then some other event, perhaps because it's often the case, um, precipitated by a very famous celebrity being accused. And Aaron mentioned Kobe Bryant earlier. That's a, a brilliant example that, you know, everyone forgets. I think I was talking with a colleague the other day about Mike Tyson, and they said, he was convicted of rape and <laughs> this colleague is is younger than I am and doesn't remember that so it's easy to die away but uh, for the next celebrity that is accused that will likely lead to more media attention and then more public discussion do you think this is going to be effective long term the kind of the pattern has been high profile man accused um, mm-hmm. and uh, then the remedy uh, except in a, a few cases, has been uh, public shaming, ostracization from from the profession. We don't know how that's going to go. You know, will they be able to sort of plead and come back to the profession? And then some high-profile cases, then you know, the the court convicts, like in the yeah. Cosby case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm sorry. The question is. Uh, the question is what? What do you do? You think this is going to be how it proceeds? Is is that effective? Um, oh. Well, I mean, I think it's effective in that it it draws that public attention and allows for a lot of activism through media, through social media now. Um, But we do see, I mean, if we even look at the examples that we're talking about, the folks who are convicted often are men of color, such as Bill Cosby and Mike Tyson, and those who are not necessarily convicted um, but maybe go through public shaming um, are 
maybe more often white. This is not across the board, but that's an important um, issue to raise the way race gets brought into the conversation. Um, so, you know, Bill Clinton, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, public shaming. Clinton obviously came back uh, quite well from that. Weinstein probably never will, um, but also may never see time in jail. So, um, you know, it's a, such a complicated issue. So in, in each case is different, right? And I, I just made the argument about race, but then we also have Larry Nazar, who's who's white, who is in prison now. So um, I, I think it depends on each individual case and then how on how media then pick up those cases and talk about them. Hmm. Maybe taking it back to, you know, on that, on that scale from, from sexual violence to sexual harassment, mm-hmm. there's a scale there. We've talked a little bit about the connection there. Uh, but sexual harassment, the, the way women navigate their, their lives. At a previous program um, here just a few months ago, I put out the question uh, to, to, to the panel, and, and they indicated in their experience and the, and the women that they talked to and the women that they talked to, just about every woman has has had to navigate some form of sexual harassment. Does the is the culture changing, and how does it get changed? Oh, I'm going to give you again a yes and no answer. I think yes, right now where there's so much attention to it, and um, especially with the Weinstein case, attention to you know, Aaron called it a spectrum, you know, so from extreme examples of um, use of force and drugs and so on to, you know, off-color remarks, right? And um, I, I do think that that public attention to all of those things as types of sexual harassment um I, I have, in my own experience, um, in various different professional settings, noticed that um, folks are a little more conscious about what they say, or maybe they say something unthinkingly and then immediately say, oh, wait, I didn't mean it that way. Or, you know, there's, there is an increased attention um, in that sense. Um, whether that will last, I don't know, when it's no longer in the public um so much in the public imaginary, we're we're like less likely to think about it on a daily basis. I mean, and and you mentioned the case uh, right now at USU, and not to call USU out, that case is exactly like hundreds of cases across the nation. But since it is so close to home for us, you know, those things were occurring during this era of heightened attention. So even though there is this public attention, um, that case and many, many, many other cases are still happening. Hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, media representations of sexual yes. violence and harassment. That's, of course, sir, in your field. Do you do some studies on this? Um, I wonder if have you talk about uh, your book, Spectacular Girls. Um, and one of the themes here. Um, simultaneous adoration and disdain for girls. Yes. Um, So one of the things that I found from doing that research is that really around actually um, maybe not coincidentally the same time as the early 90s that we were talking about earlier in the program, there was a, a real increased attention to girls in media. And there are lots of different reasons to understand why that is, including changes in how cable television was functioning at the time um, and the increase in the economic structure of the media conglomerate with Disney becoming uh, starting to become the massive industry that it is today. Um, 
part of that was around fragmenting of audiences and an increase in representations of girls in order to access multiple audiences and to fill airspace as cable proliferated. Um, and so in that context, there's more and more attention to girls, and that's continued up until the present. Um, and it's simultaneously, as as you were drawing from my book, um, you know, affection for, adoration for, interest in girls, but also, you know, the moment a girl makes a, quote, poor choice, a kind of intense disdain for her. And so um, and a good example of that might be, you know, a, 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 a celebrity who, like Britney Spears or Lindsay Lohan, who were incredibly popular and then um, sort of had a crash and burn moment where the choices that they were making in their lives were depicted in the media as bad choices and suddenly their popularity decreased. So they are good examples of, of first adoration and then disdain for the girl character. Hmm. Um, that of course the, this <coughs> depiction, which uh, which we receive sort of uh, unconsciously, we don't we don't, you know, unless we're a professor like you, we don't, we don't parse it out. How does that affect then the, the mm-hmm. you know how how we treat each other, how we interact with each other? Um, well, I mean, all I, I will answer that more generally, not just to, in relation to my my more recent book, but that you know the narratives that media tell us about any subject, of course, um, as you say, and even media scholars like myself are not always you know paying close close attention, right? So these narratives do impact us. They might structure how we think about our own lives or how we think about other people, but but. In my research, I've also found even if someone is not consciously taking an analytical or critical perspective on the media, kids in particular, I found in my research, are quite analytical of media. So they don't necessarily think, oh, I'm going to write a media criticism essay. If you ask them to do that, they'd run screaming, right? But they are um, actually thinking quite analytically about what they're seeing. One of the um, my favorite examples is I was... Um, doing research with a group of third graders, and and one of the girls said, oh, I just want to be just like Selena Gomez. This was when Selena Gomez was um, 13 or 14 and on Wizards of Waverly Place before she became the pop star she is today. And um, I thought, oh, dear, that's so sad. You know, that that's her only model. And um, I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, I really would like to be um, on television and I want to be an actor and I'm really interested in being able to um, sing and act and perform. And so for her, it was, quote, being like Selena Gomez wasn't sort of being the kind of um, goofy character she was on Wizards of Waverly Place, but was a professional. It was a, a goal to be a professional. And that really taught me something about how kids in particular interact with media in really complicated ways. Um, and we don't want to assume always that whatever story we're being told or whatever representation we're being seen, that, that everybody just takes it at face value, even if they're not necessarily consciously aware that they're thinking analytically or critically about what they're seeing. Mm. This is where it starts, right? When we're girls and when we're boys, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, absolutely. So you, 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 know, you talk to young people, I guess the sort of the popular conception is that uh, all girls want to be princesses 
But I, I'm guessing it's more complicated than that. Yes, exactly. Disney would like us to think all girls want to be princesses. And, you know, if you do, and some of the research I I do is actually at theme parks. So, like, for instance, at Disney. Um, And if you go to Disney, you will see many girls who went to the uh, boutique to get dressed up as princesses and pay hundreds of dollars to get a dress and have their hair and makeup done. And they're walking around Disney. Um, But if you look closer, they're not necessarily behaving like the quintessential we would imagine that quintessential princess should behave they're doing all sorts of things like um, running climbing on trees they're not supposed to climb on um, you know just kind of being themselves really and so what it means to be a princess even in that context at Disney where Dis- the, the context of the theme park is inviting everybody to imagine themselves as princes and princesses um, how we might do that can be uh, quite a individual and unique uh, approach to it. So it's never a, I would argue it's never a kind of simplistic, oh, Disney makes girls want to be princesses and what a horrible thing that is. I think it's much more interesting to say, well, what does it mean to a girl to be a princess? Mm. And really listen to her answer. And then I, I wonder how the boys are responding to, mm. you know, to that. They they they're they're getting the messages right. They watch Disney or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and they're they're getting messages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, lots of boys want to be princesses too. I mean, that's an yeah. interesting piece of it. Yeah. I mean, one part is to to pay attention to gender diversity, but another part is since Disney makes being a princess seem pretty great, and princes are you know rather boring, um, it's maybe not a surprise <laughs> that little boys might think that being a princess might be kind of fun. So. So, um, again, I guess I'm just advocating understanding it in a pretty complicated way. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, um, I was struck by the, uh, just, you know, kind of flipping through the book here, by the conclusion at the end of the book here, mm-hmm. uh, Spectacular Girls, title of the book. Um, and you talk about uh, being in Australia mm-hmm. when, when the news came of Newtown, the shootings yeah. at, at Newtown, and you're reflecting yeah. on depictions, uh, how the media is representing, I guess, the how they chose to represent the, all of the all of the kids there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a great example um, where at least the little clip that I had access to when I was sitting there waiting for my shuttle to the airport to come home, um, you know, centered a very um, a picture of a very young blonde girl who had died and her mother and sort of, you know, authorizing the the mourning and the tragedy around that figure. Um, and, and, you know, adults died, older children died, um, but this was the figure that was used. This very young blonde girl was the figure that was used to... Um, depict how horrific the event was. And um, this is not to say that it wasn't horrific because that girl died. Of course it was. But that is a pretty typical way that girls can often be used in media to tell stories, that it is the ultimate tragedy when a horrible thing, any kind of horrible thing, happens to a young person, a young white person, a young female person. Um, and, and that girl comes to be the center of that tragedy. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, we have a final segment with Sarah Pojanski. She's Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Academic Affairs in the College of Fine Arts 
and professor in the Gender Studies Department at University of Utah. She's joining us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to the good folks there. And uh, her books include Spectacular Girls, Media Fascination, and Celebrity Culture. We've just been talking about that. Another book is Watching Rape, Film and Television in Post-Feminist Culture. Uh, perhaps talk a bit about that in the next uh, the next segment of the program. Her most recent essay is titled From Pro-Equality to Anti-Sexual Violence, The Feminist Logics of Title IX in Policy and Media. And uh, she'll be one of the panelists for a panel titled The Slippery Slope of Sexual Harassment that's presented by the Utah Women's Giving Circle. That's Wednesday, May 30th, 6.30 p.m. in the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Auditorium, University of Utah, and that's free and open to the public. More following this break. Coming up, cellist Raphael Bell plays music he never used to like. Sometimes when we're young, we develop funny prejudices against certain composers, and I don't know why, but I wasn't interested in finding out more about Martineau. We'll find out more about Bohuslav Martineau and why Raphael Bell now loves his music on the next Performance Today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater June 23rd through August 4th in Logan. Full orchestra, concerts, tours, and performances of Into the Woods, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, Amazing Grace, and more. Details at utahfestival.org. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll head down under for music from Australia and New Zealand. You come from a land down under. Women glow and men plunder. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us tomorrow night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment of the program today, and we're talking with Sarah Perjanski. Uh, she is a professor in the Gender Studies Department at the University of Utah. She's Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Academic Affairs at College of Fine Arts there. And uh, she will be a panelist, along with Nubia Pena, who's Advocacy Prevention Training Specialist, Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault, and Aaron Jemison, Director of Public Policy, YWCA of Utah. A uh, panel uh, presented by the Utah Women's Giving Circle, and it's titled The Slippery Slope of Sexual Harassment. That's Wednesday, May 30th at 6.30 p.m. in the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Auditorium at University of Utah, and that uh, panel is free and open to the public. The panelists will discuss the history and current state of media representations of sexual violence and harassment, the connection between sexual harassment and violence, and the role of public policy. You're welcome to join this discussion at upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, or you can uh, call us, 800-826-1495, So, Sarah Pajanski, a, a previous discussion a couple of months ago on this uh, topic, uh, we, we had an English professor here at uh, USU on with us, and uh, we looked at some of the literature and uh, she pointed out, Maddie Burkert, uh, assistant professor of English at uh, USU, pointed out some novels uh, today romanticize abusive uh, behavior. Uh, use that to lead into a discussion, perhaps, of your book, Watching Rape, Film, film and Television in Post-Feminist uh, Culture. 
Um, one of the questions your publisher asks in the introduction uh, to the to the book: How have media defined rape and feminism differently over over time? I wonder if you could uh, get into a discussion here on uh, media depictions of sexual violence. Sure. Um, well, there's a lot in what you just said. I mean, there have been really important changes over time, and we've been talking about that this whole hour. Um, but one of the things that I uh, discuss in the book is the persistence and ubiquity of representations of sexual violence. Um, I'm going to use the little uh, ditty that was just played during the break the, about Australia, the land down under where women glow and men plunder. Um, and this is very easy for me to do. Like whatever media is around me at the moment, I can show how there is often an allusion to some kind of potential coercion or violence. That's a very, very minor one. The idea that somehow... Um, Right, because that little song doesn't doesn't isn't actually about assault, but the vision of women glowing and men plundering, um, in fact, can be understood as setting up social relations and power relations that can lead to assault. Right, so that's one of the things the book um, argues is that those kind of depictions of sexual violence are everywhere, um, and so. They have functioned differently across time. Um, in the time frame that I'm looking at in the book, which is the the late 20th or really the late 20th century, they were very tightly connected to uh, ideas about post-feminism. This was a concept that emerged around 1982, um, the idea that because feminism had sup supposedly been successful, it was no longer needed, the idea of post-feminism. And stories about rape, um, and I, I look mostly at fictional, not news coverage, uh, fictional stories about rape very much at that time intersected with ideas of post-feminism so that, um, for example, the idea was that rape law had been reformed so that women were now believed and they weren't put on trial for a second time. Um, and as a result, uh, the law was, these are the stories that are being told, the law was available to women uh, to use if they'd been raped. And so the stories were often about how the woman who has faced rape or some kind of violence then has to use the law, the law and the courts to um, get justice. And very often in these stories, um, men, in fact, appear to be better feminists than women. It's often a male lawyer or police officer who explains to the the female character how to use the law. So these are just different examples of uh, post-feminist ideas that were repetitively articulated through rape narratives in the late 20th century. And that's one of the things that that book looks at. Mm. What, um, how can this be in a healthy way uh, depicted? Mm -hmm. what, what are some, I guess, healthy examples that yeah. send good messages? And I should be clear, I'm not saying what I just described is necessarily a, a bad or unhealthy narrative. I do think it's problematic to imply that we no longer need feminism. I think we see that in the Me Too era, which is 20 years later. We sure do still need it. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but 
what I'm trying to say is that the stories help us reflect on specific issues that might be going on in popular culture at the time. Um, however, to, to more directly answer your question, um, I don't think there's one perfect way, but I think ways that I have seen sexual harassment and sexual violence depicted that um, I think move us forward in more positive ways are when um, stories about rape are challenged, when it's named for what it is, um, when um, the perspective is with the person, usually a woman, but not always, who's experiencing the assault um, and not with the assaulter. And I can give examples actually um, from the present, but also from the past. One of my favorite movies, which likely none of your listeners have ever seen is because it was a B film noir from the 40s. It's called The Pitfall. It's very hard to come by. But there's a scene where... Um, Basically, this private detective has been stalking a woman um, who he's trying to prove is having an affair with a man who, in fact, she is having an affair with. And um, But he's stalking her as well in the process of investigating. And he follows her to her place of work where she um, models clothing um, for usually for women at a fancy um department store and he forces her to model different dresses for him and he, I should say, he and the and the shop owner force her because it's her job. But the camera stays on his face, not on her. So we see what she sees, not what he sees. And it's this, for me, very profound moment in this film from the 40s where um, the film flips the typical line of sight and instead of the woman's body being sexualized for the audience along with him, um, the story of sexualization is about him watching, not about her being available. So those are that's just one example of a moment um, in a film where the depiction really draws attention to the fact that what he is doing is... Uh, an act of violence is a, an act of harassment. Um, and I like to use that example because folks don't expect me to t pick up a film from the 40s. Mm -hmm. um, a similar film, recent one, uh, is Red Sparrow, where um, Jennifer Lawrence's character um, is takes a moment where she has no choice but to be sexually available, and she makes it about she takes control of the situation. So she's experiencing assault, but in the moment of, of experience, I don't want to be too explicit, right? Especially if folks haven't seen it, but in the moment of experiencing the assault, she calls out what the assault is about. And she, she actually defines uh, sexual violence as about power and not uh, sexual desire. Um, and that's another moment that reminded me actually of the earlier film. Um, and so that's from this year, Red Sparrow. Mm -hmm. No, that's that's interesting to connect connect those up. Yeah, and uh, especially that earlier example um, stands out because it is fairly unusual, right? Yes, it is. It yeah. is, and actually, I think Red Sparrow is very unusual mm -hmm. too. Um, I think, although the kind of explicit, you know, kind of violent sexualization of women that might have been normalized in the 40s, 50s, and 60s is not as common today. We still have generally um, typical narratives where women's 
sexuality or their bodies are available for others. Um, and so I, I do think that moment in Red Sparrow is unique. Uh, mm. um, um, just a few minutes left here. I, I'm very interested in um, one of the chapters here. You uh, you talk about Thelma and Louise. Yes. There are a lot of themes in that movie. It's, it's been, I think it's stayed with a lot of people, right? A lot of, uh, it, it stands for uh, certain things, I think, uh, different things to different people. Uh, what are you talking about in, in Thelma and Louise? I, I think the, the line that I love here, you say, um, I can't remember which one, Thelma or Louise uh, says, we don't want to end up on the Geraldo show. Right. So, and that's a reference, I love that reference as well, because it's a direct reference to the intensity of media coverage in the late 80s and 90s. And that's what Aaron Jamison and I were talking about earlier. That was a moment um, when there was, like Me Too now, uh, intense public scrutiny. And, and one of the ways that rape and sexual harassment was represented at the time was through talk shows like The Geraldo Show. And so... Um, for me, that line is a way of understanding, and I also don't remember which character said it, understanding Thelma and Louise, the characters, um, charting their own course. You know, And, of course, the, the final outcome is suicide, so that's you know maybe not the greatest <laughs> choice, right? Um, but it is about them making those choices. After the assault happens, um, they they make a series of choices. That's one of the things I talk about in the book all the way through the film, um, each of which is addressed by them as um, a choice that impacts the, the course of their lives. The, the action that initiated uh, the you know ultimate catastrophe was not their choice, um, but everything after that is their choice. I think that's one of the things the film is working on. Mm. Um, just near the end here, I want to bring up a, a, a column from Elizabeth Brunig, a columnist with the uh, Washington Post. She's written uh, quite a bit on on Me Too and and, uh, and the, perhaps the cultural shift here. And one of these articles, um, she's talking about uh, the, what some have proposed as redefining contract, you know, men and women um, and and sex. And uh, to to perhaps make a literal contract, and that this is just kind of an extension off a discussion of, um, you know, the, you must get a yes before you know mm -hmm. before before sex, kind of kind of this contract. And she says, no, that's that's not the way to go. You 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 can't boil it down to this uh, contractual um, relationship. So there will always be inveterate predators, quoting her. Some who are insensitive to the suffering of others. But it might be time to stop thinking about our relationships with other people as a series of contracts. Well, I haven't read it, and so I, I hesitate to um, kind of disagree without knowing the whole context. But I would, I mean, the first thing my mind goes to is that marriage, in fact, is a contract. We're all about contracts between men and women. Um, and we also have contracts when we take jobs. And those contracts often will say things like, um, you're not allowed to sexual harass, not with those words, but basically, you know, these are our rules. You will follow, for instance, at the University of Utah, my contract says you will follow faculty code and faculty code says you will not sexual harass. So, so the idea that we somehow should go back to not having contracts is confusing for me because, in fact, we do have contracts. On the other hand, it is true that affirmative consent as a concept um, has to be 
very um, subtle, right? We can't say that literally every any two humans who are choosing to have a sexual encounter with each other need to stop, get out a piece of paper, write down a contract, and sign their name, um, in part because five minutes later they might change their mind, and so the contract is null and void anyway. But the concept of uh, looking each other in the eye metaphorically and being clear with what each other wants, um, which is in a sense a metaphorical contract, I think is quite useful. And in fact, I think it's what most of us do most mm. of the time. Um, we just probably don't think of it that way. Uh, just about a minute left. Uh, I wonder what's, uh, I think a lot of people are looking for a continuing cultural shift or maybe a, a accelerating that or what's going to be the biggest factor there? Is it Aaron Jemison mentioned uh, more women running for office? What uh, what do you think? Well, I think that's that's probably right. I think I'll go back to my area of expertise, with the, which is media. And I think social media have changed the landscape significantly. And that's not a simplistic, you know, because we have the Me Too activism movement through social media that it's all, you know, perfect, because, of course, there's intense backlash through social media as well. So it's just another form of media, a different medium that allows a quicker and wider dispersion of activism. Um, so it's both something to be cautious of because of the backlash, but I think is a way that many more people are able to contribute to the broad uh, media representation of these issues. And to me, that's really a positive thing. Uh, we've been talking with Sarah Pajanski. She is a professor in the Gender Studies Department at the University of Utah, Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Academic Affairs at College of Fine Arts there. And uh, she'll be participating in a panel discussion presented by the Utah Women's Giving Circle. That uh, discussion is titled The Slippery Slope of Sexual Harassment. It's happening Wednesday, May 30th, 6.30 p.m. in the Carolyn Tanner Irish Humanities Auditorium at University of Utah. And uh, the other panelists are Nubia Pena with the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault and Aaron Jemison with YWCA of Utah, who joined us earlier. Thanks to her. Uh, Sarah Pajanski, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And our thanks to the good folks at KCPW. Uh, they uh, have hosted Sarah Pajanski for, for the hour. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and AggieCribs.com, produced and maintained by USU Student Media, offering Logan housing options, the ability to buy or sell contracts, and other resources. Drop-down boxes customize housing searches. Details at AggieCribs.com. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.